We read God's word this evening in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, 
ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far we read God's holy word. Our text is Romans 6 verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Beloved, the word then in verse 1 is an inference. What shall we say then? An inference is a conclusion. If what is taught in the context is true, what shall our conclusion be? And Paul here anticipates an argument. He sets forth the truth of gracious salvation. He anticipates an argument from an objector, and like a good teacher, he answers that argument. And the argument is foolish. But, and here's the danger in the argument, but it appears reasonable and even logical. And the argument seems reasonable because it begins with a good premise. The true premise is this. We are saved by the grace of God without our works. The true premise is this. God's goal in our salvation is the praise of the glory of his grace. The true premise is this. God wills that his grace be magnified or that his grace abound or increase or multiply in our salvation. And the arguer who brings forth this argument understands that, or at least he seems to understand that, because he says, let us continue in sin. And here's the, the supposed purpose of this continuing in sin. Let us continue in sin that or so that grace may abound. And so the arguer on the surface seems to be interested in and concerned about God's grace. But beloved, an argument that begins with a true premise and then comes to the wrong conclusion 
Such an argument is very dangerous. Look at the argument and its premise more closely. If we are saved by grace alone and by faith alone, without our works, shall we continue in sin? Or, if our good works contribute nothing to our salvation, shall we continue in sin? And if God forgives all of our sins, past, present, and future, on the basis of Christ's atonement, shall we continue in sin? And if the covenant is unconditional, so that our being in the covenant and our remaining in the covenant do not depend upon our performance, shall we continue in sin? And if even our sins cannot separate us from our God, shall we continue in sin? A whole lot of premises which are true. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, without works. It is true that our good works contribute nothing to our salvation. The covenant is indeed unconditional. It does not depend upon our performance. Our sins cannot separate us from our God. These things are true. And if these things are true, then the question is, is the conclusion not also true that we should continue in sin? A foolish argument, I say, even a dangerous argument, I say, based on a true premise. And let's look at how Paul addresses this argument in the text. Notice our continuing in sin impossible. That's the theme. Our continuing in sin impossible. Notice first a foolish argument rejected, and second, a compelling reason given. What is it then to get to the heart of this argument? What is it to continue in sin? Shall we continue in sin? Well, it's more than simply saying, shall we sin? The apostle does not write here, shall we sin that grace may abound? We all sin. There's sin within us. There's sin in our flesh. Sin spoils our best works. Sin cleaves to us. That's not the apostle's word here, shall we sin, because sadly we will sin. But the question is, shall we continue in sin, which is a different idea. Think of that word continue for a moment. At its most basic, the word continue means to stay for a considerable period of time in a certain place 
or to continue doing something for a period of time. The verb is used, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8, where it is rendered tarry. Paul says to the Corinthians, I will tarry or continue at Ephesus until Pentecost. In Acts 12, verse 16, the word is rendered continue, but Peter continued knocking. And the idea then is that Paul remained in Ephesus for a period of time and that Peter persisted in knocking on the door until it was opened to him. Now apply that to spiritual things. Acts 13.43, Paul writes, or rather Luke writes, Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed to thyself, and unto the doctrine, continue in them. And so the idea there is that these new converts should persevere in God's grace. The idea is that Timothy should be faithful to continue in godliness and good doctrine. And I apply that to sin. Shall we continue in sin? Shall we persist in sin? Shall we persevere in sinning? Shall we continue to make sin our habitual practice? If our sin is idolatry, shall we continue to worship idols? If our sin is blasphemy, shall we continue? to dishonor and abuse God's holy name. If our sin is the desecration of the Sabbath day, shall we continue to work on the Sabbath day and neglect the public worship of God? If our sin is disobedience to authority, shall we continue to dishonor our parents and teachers and other authorities? If our sin is murder, shall we continue to hate and wound and kill our neighbor with malice and cruelty? If our sin is adultery, shall we continue to live in an adulterous relationship and continue to defile ourselves with the filth of this world? If our sin is theft, shall we continue to steal? If our sin is lying, Shall we continue to speak falsehood, slander, and gossip? If our sin is covetousness, shall we continue to be greedy and to indulge our lusts and pleasures? Shall we continue? Shall we persist? Shall we persevere in sin? And then there's the word in, a little word in, shall we continue in sin? And that word in then identifies the sphere in which this continuing occurs. And so we're thinking here of 
the environment or the place or the sphere where something happens or continues to happen. A fish continues in water. That's where it lives. That's its environment. That's where it belongs. That's where it needs to be. That's where it feels at home. In water. Another question is to us, shall we continue in sin? Shall sin be the environment where we live? Shall sin be where we belong? Shall sin be where we make our abode? Where we need to be? Where we feel at home? It's not this. Shall we commit sin? Sadly, we know we shall commit sin. It's not this, shall we continue to be sinful? We also know that we will continue until our dying day to have a sinful flesh which will cleave to us and spoil our best works. But rather the question is this, shall we continue to commit sin as our constant Persistent practice. Shall sin be to us as water is to a fish or as air is to a bird, our natural environment? Shall sin be something that we delight in and enjoy and desire to continue in? That's the question that the arguer brings that Paul echoes here in verse 1. Shall we continue in sin? And the argument seems very reasonable because it begins with God's grace. And that's where a seemingly reasonable and a seemingly logical argument becomes devilish. Shall we continue in sin? Here's the supposed purpose. That grace may abound. And the arguer here seems to have a high view of God's grace. If you ask this person, he will tell you he loves God's grace Maybe even he preaches God's grace and he teaches God's grace and he says, I want God's grace to abound. I want it to increase and to multiply and to be magnified. We know what God's grace is. God's grace is the beauty of God's perfect character. We worship God in the beauty of holiness, says the psalmist. And our great desire as believers in Christ Jesus, our great desire is that his grace should abound. God's grace is his beautiful attitude of favor toward us who are unworthy sinners. And in his grace toward us, he blesses us. He wills to bless us and he blesses us. And that grace comes to us, it has its source in unconditional election 
And it is displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ, where Christ died for our sin. It's given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We love to hear about God's grace. It is the focus of our preaching. We love to see that grace on display in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love to see that grace on display in the lives of our fellow believers in the church. We desire, do we not, that God's grace should abound. God's grace is also this, His power to deliver us from the shameful vileness of our sin and to make us spiritually beautiful with the beauty of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And we love to see the power of that grace in our lives, in the lives of others, as God beautifies them with the beauty of Jesus Christ. We love to see how God's grace makes us holy, upholds us in our trials. And we say, yes, yes, may God's grace abound. Here comes the arguer. God's grace is displayed in their forgiveness of sins. The more sins you commit, the more God's grace abounds. And the arguer comes along and he says, God's grace is displayed in his justifying of sinners. And the more sins you commit, the more his grace is magnified in your justification. And so, we should continue in sin. We should multiply our sins so that God's grace might Abound. And he comes to us, this arguer, he's called an antinomian, by the way. He comes to us, this arguer, and he says to us, you want God's grace to abound, do you not? Well, then let's sin. Let's sin freely and grossly and presumptuously and persistently, and then God's grace will abound. The more you sin, the more God's grace will forgive you. The more you sin, the more God will be magnified in your justification. And so the obvious logical conclusion is, sin as much as you can. Live as ungodly as you can. The more ungodly you are, the more gracious God is to you in your justification. And the more God's grace abounds. In fact, says this arguer, if you do not sin much, if you make little effort to multiply your sins and grossly transgress God's commandments, well then God will have very little to do in your life in his grace. God's grace will really have nothing or very little to do in your Christian life. And then God's grace says this, arguer, it will shrink. 
And then God's grace says the arguer will actually be dishonored. It will decrease rather than multiply and increase. And so the only obvious conclusion is sin freely, sin grossly, sin presumptuously, and then God will be extra gracious to you and God will be glorified in your sinning. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You've heard the argument, what's your response? Now perhaps as you sit here this evening and listen to the sermon, you cannot think of a sophisticated theological response. Perhaps you say to yourself, well, that sounds reasonable, but I don't know how to rebut that. I'm not a great theologian, you say to yourself. I'm not sure how to answer that. But here is, I trust, the response of your heart and soul. God forbid. That ought to be, I trust it is, the response of your heart and soul this evening. God forbid. May it never be. Perish the thought. God forbid. And those words are the response of the Apostle Paul. God forbid. The Apostle's immediate response to this idea is God Forbid. And those words, God forbid, are found often in the New Testament. You can look them up. And the literal meaning of God forbid is, may it not be. And these words, God forbid, usually express a strong desire that something not be true or that something not happen. They are an expression of strong rejection or abhorrence of something. God forbid. Romans 9.14, Paul writes, What shall we then say? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. The very idea that God could be unrighteous is abhorrent to the apostle. And so he says, God forbid. And the very idea that we might continue in sin, and especially the idea that we might do so in order to cause God's grace to abound, is detestable to him. I trust also detestable to us. The answer here is not logical or exegetical or theological It is the spontaneous response of the heart and soul of the child of God. When he hears this argument, his response by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit is, God forbid, may it never be. 
The fact is, beloved, if God were to suggest such salvation to us, if such salvation were possible, we would not want it. If God said to us, I will forgive your sins, you will be justified, you will be delivered therefore from the guilt of sin, I will never punish you for your sin. If God said that to us, and then said this, but you will continue to live in sin under the power of sin, in the bondage of sin, we would say, God forbid. God forbid. If God said to us, I will justify you, but I will not sanctify you. And therefore, you will remain in the filth and pollution and vileness and shame of your sin forever, but you will be forgiven. We would say, God forbid. Such a salvation is abhorrent to us. An unbeliever would love that. You go to an unbeliever and you tell an unbeliever, here is what salvation is. You can be forgiven of all of your sin. You can be spared hell. No fear of punishment for you. But you will not be saved from sin. The unbeliever would love that. A carnal person would love that too. Forgiven? And then I can live in sin as much as I like. He would love that. The child of God, who knows what the grace of God is, says, God forbid. If I am saved, I must be saved from the guilt of sin and the power and the bondage and the pollution and the defilement and the shame of sin. If I am saved, I must be saved so that I do not continue in the sin that I detest. If I am saved, I must be delivered in such a way that I am then able, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to serve the God whom I love. Anything less is not salvation. Anything less is not the abounding of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Anything less is the ugly tyrant of sin masquerading himself as the grace of God. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God Forbid. But the apostle has more to say than simply God forbid. He has a theological reason for his God forbid. His theological argument is this How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Or more literally, we, the ones who died to sin, 
how shall we still live in it? You see the argument that the apostle is making here, the theological response to this wicked idea? It's simply this. Our relationship to sin has changed. Our relationship to sin has changed. There was a time in the past when we lived in sin. And now we are dead to sin. And that's a radical change. The Bible calls living in sin being dead in sin. Notice the difference. There's being dead in sin, and then there's being dead to sin. We were dead in sin, and we are now dead to sin. Ephesians 2 is the classic passage on this, on being dead in sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Here's what that means, to be dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein, in time past, he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The Ephesians had been dead in sin. They had been filled with darkness. They had been totally depraved. And that's true of all unbelievers today as well. They are still, as unbelievers, unregenerate. They are dead in sin. But believers who were dead in sin are now alive. Alive. They have been quickened, as verse 1 says in Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, or you hath he made alive. And so in the past then, our relationship to sin was one thing, and now, by God's grace, our relationship to sin is something very different. Sin used to be the environment in which we lived. It was our spiritual habitat, if you will. Sin was to us in the past as water is to a fish. We, we lived in it. We, we felt comfortable in that environment. We delighted to be in sin. It was like mud to a pig for us. We wallowed in it. It was our life. We knew nothing else. Perhaps you don't remember that because you grew up in the church. But the Ephesians certainly did. They were idolaters. 
And the Romans certainly did, who grew up in idolatry as well. They remembered what it was like to be dead in sin. And now says the apostle, that has changed for you. You're no longer dead in sin, but you're dead to sin. And you're dead to sin because literally you died to sin. Something happened to you in the past. You died to sin so that now in the present you are dead to sin. The relationship between you and sin has changed. That's true from a legal point of view. Sin was our Lord. Sin was our master. Sin was our king. Sin held sway in our life. Sin sat on the throne of our hearts to fill our minds with perverse things, to direct our wills, and to employ the members of our body in the service of evil, as the chapter goes on to tell us. That's because we fell in Adam. We were guilty in him, and by the righteous judgment of God, we were sold into the power of sin and death. And so Paul says at the end of the previous chapter, Romans 5.21, sin hath reigned. A king reigns. Sin was like a king ruling or reigning. It reigned in us. That relationship has changed also from a spiritual point of view. You mustn't think that we, or the Ephesians, or the Romans, were before our regeneration unwilling servants of sin. It wasn't as if sin came along and overpowered us as a master and forced us against our will to commit sin. But rather, sin so enslaved us that we loved it. And therefore, we would never have made any attempt to escape from sin's clutches. Sin's power was such that we willingly, even gladly, even greedily served sin. And so those chains by which sinners are held captive are always spiritual, and sinners are held captive by their own lusts and desires so that they never desire to be free. The heart is captivated by sin. The soul enthralled by sin. The will delights in sin. And thus the sinner is deceived by his sin until one day he wakes up in hell and even then he still loves his sin. In hell, the sinner continues to gnash his teeth in rebellion against God forever as God pours out his wrath and fury upon that sinner. And there is no escape for the sinner from the power of sin. 
except he be delivered by one greater, even by Jesus Christ. Our relationship to sin changed, says the apostle, when we died. Verse 2 is literally, as I said, we the ones who died to sin, how shall we still live in it? We died to sin. Death. Death is a number of things in Scripture, but death is this. Death is the end of a relationship, both its legal obligations and its enjoyment. That's true of earthly relationships. Death brings them to an end. If a woman is married to a man, that relationship ends when she dies. If the marriage was a happy one, then that sweet communion of marriage ends at death. If that marriage was a miserable one, well, the misery of that marriage relationship ends at death. That person's died. The husband has no more power over her, has no more relationship to her. Or if you have a legal obligation, that ends when you die. A creditor cannot pursue you for your debts after you have died. A prosecutor cannot charge you with a crime and seek to convict you of a crime after you have died. Death ends that legal relationship. And that's true spiritually as well with respect to sin. There was this relationship between us and sin until we died, and now that relationship has ended. Sin had a right to rule over us until we died, and now we are dead to sin. Sin had a right to demand our service to control our hearts and mind and soul and will, to employ the members of our body to fulfill its desires. And then we died. And having died, we are dead to sin. And therefore, when sin comes, and sin will come, and sin will try to lure us and tempt us and entice us, And sin will say to us, serve me. I am your master. I am your king. I rule. Serve me. Get drunk. Do drugs. Watch pornography. Dishonor your parents. Worship idols. Live in malice and envy and hatred. Spread gossip. Be a backbiter. Be a slanderer. Serve me. I am your master. I am your king. Serve me. And our response is, and must be, 
You used to be my king. You used to be my Lord. You had power over me in the past. But I have died to you. I have died to you. I am dead to you. Our relationship is over. I will not live any longer by serving you. That's the answer. And this happened, we died to sin, with the result that we are now dead to sin. This happened in Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross, two very important things occurred. First, Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sins. He obtained pardon for us. And second, and this is less known to us, second, Jesus severed or broke the relationship that existed between us and sin. When Jesus died for us, we died in him. We died with him. We died in and with him to sin. And the apostle We'll go on to explain that further in the next few verses and throughout this chapter. This is to be developed throughout chapter 6. And then the benefit of that cross of Christ, which took place, of course, 2,000 years ago, the benefit of that cross of Christ must be and is then applied to us in our lifetime when we are baptized into Jesus Christ. Christ, when we are regenerated, we become alive. And being alive to God means that we are dead to sin. But notice something else. Sin did not die. We died. And that's an important distinction to make too. The apostle does not write this, How shall we to whom sin is dead live any longer in it? But rather, how shall we who are dead or who have died to sin live any longer therein? A big difference there is between those two things. If sin had died, then sin would no longer have power to tempt us or to harass us or to annoy us or to attract us or to lure us. If sin had died, we know, of course, that sin has not died because sin has all of those powers still to tempt us, to harass us, to annoy us, to attract us, to lure us. Sin does it all the time. But sin does not have the power to rule us. And therefore, if we permit sin into our life, and if we permit that sin should rule over us or reign over us, and as it were, we put our necks under the yoke of sin and then willingly serve sin, we are denying what is true of us that we have died to sin. 
We're going back to our old master and offering our services to him again. And then we suffer the consequences of such foolishness because God will, through painful chastisement, bring us to repentance so that we live as those who have died to sin. And so the conclusion is, we might fall into sin, but we cannot continue in sin. We might be tempted to sin and even succumb to that temptation, but we cannot continue in sin. We cannot be happy in sin because sin is no longer our natural environment. We've died to it. And so God's grace does not abound this way when we continue in sin. God forbid is our response to that. God's grace abounds this way where God not only forgives sin, but delivers us from the power and bondage of sin so that we no longer live in sin. In that way, God's grace abounds. And that's because we are dead or we died to the power of sin so that we were released from the tyranny and misery of our old master. And we died so that we are now free to serve our new master, even Jesus Christ, who reigns in us in righteousness. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the rich salvation that thou hast given to us. Thou hast forgiven us all of our sins, and thou hast also delivered us from the power and bondage and tyranny of sin, so that we no longer serve sin, but serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us, that we might die in him, and in dying in him, we might die to sin itself. We thank thee for this salvation. Give us grace to live according to it. For Christ's sake, amen.